chapter 40. I'm going to read verse 1 and 2 for context and then jump over to verse 12, please. Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or as his counselor has informed him with whom did he consult and who gave him understanding and who taught him In the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. To whom then will you liken God or what likeness will you compare with him? As for the idol, a craftsman casts it, a goldsmith plates it with gold and a silversmith fashions chains of silver. He who is too impoverished for such an offering selects a tree that does not rot He seeks out for himself a skillful craftsman to prepare an idol that will not totter. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He It is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted. Scarcely have they been sown. Scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth. But he merely blows on them and they wither. And the storm carries them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me that I would be his equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. The one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary and to him who lacks might. 
he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Amen. Well, our theme tonight is God's comfort for his people with revelations of his greatness. God's comfort for his people with revelations of his greatness. What do you do for comfort? Well, worldly people will often turn to illicit things, maybe drugs or drunkenness. Some may turn to the accumulation of material goods. Some look to elevate their reputation and their position before men to make them feel secure in this world. Some people make idols of their family, of friends, leisure, work, recreations, all in order to try and gain comfort, to numb the effects of a fallen life and a fallen world. Fallen man seeks comfort. He does seek something in this world and in this life. Where does God turn our attention when he wants to comfort us? He turns our attention and thoughts to himself. And so that will be our theme tonight, boys and girls. We will talk about the comfort we derive by turning our thoughts to the Lord. Nothing comforts the people of God as much as divine revelation of himself. God has, of course, revealed himself in the creation through general revelation. And we'll see that tonight, that God is going to draw our attention to the creation. But he also directs our attention to himself by way of his word. We have seen in the Bible that life is short. Now, in the antediluvian period, that is the period that was before uh, the flood, uh, 900 years was the course of one's life. To us, that seems really, really long. How old are you? Oh, I'm 932 years, you know. But now man's life has been shortened from 900 plus years to about 70 or 80 with extra strength. And how much more today are we transient and temporary? We fade away along with all our thoughts and with all our passions and with all our controversies. Few to none of our descendants will know us. I don't know if you can name. Can you name all your great grandparents? First name. Can you name all eight of them? It doesn't take many generations, does it? Before we are gone and in many cases forgotten. But God has a revelation for us. He has comfort for us in his own glory and also in the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to talk about the comfort that we as believers derive, first of all, from the greatness of God. The comfort we derive First of all, from the greatness of God in verses 12 and following. And then when we get down to verse 18, we're going to see also the uniqueness of God. Who 
is like God. And of course, the answer, boys and girls, is no one is like him. He is indeed truly unique, even though that word unique is often overused in our culture. People will say, well, that, that is really unique or that person and, and it's really that's, that thing is unique. And it's not it's, it's not really unique at all. And uh, but God truly is uh, unique in and of himself. But let's look at our text here in Isaiah 40, verse 12, and just come and, and derive the comfort that God would have for us even tonight in the greatness of God. Maybe some of you are in need of that comfort. The uh, holiday season uh, for some, is not an easy period. For some, it represents great loss. It represents a time where they are missing uh, people that they loved and that were here. For others, it's a time of loneliness rather than a time of fellowship. Notice what Isaiah says in Isaiah 40, verse 12. He directs our attention to the greatness of God demonstrated by the vastness of the creation. Look at verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? Notice here he directs our attention to waters, to the heavens, to the dirt and to the mountains. He has us look all over, doesn't he? He has us first to draw our attention to the oceans. Who has measured the waters in his hand? You think of going to the beach. Uh, boys and girls, I know many of you like to go to the beach and, and to play. I've seen some of you at the beach uh, playing in the waters. And you think about how vast that ocean is as far as your eye can see to the very curvature of the earth. We see nothing but water at that beach. And that is why I think what we, we sometimes are attracted to the ocean is there's a there's a sense of majesty to that part of the creation, isn't it? There, there's something special about going to the ocean and seeing how, how large it is. But then notice Isaiah directs our attention upward to the heavens. And I'll say more about that in a in a minute. And then he has us look at the dirt of all things. He has us look down at the ground. Now, some of you, you enjoy the dirt. You like putting on the grubby clothes and getting out in that yard of yours and in that garden and hoeing and digging and planting and watering. And Isaiah says, think about the dirt. How much dirt is there in the world? How much dust is there? Well, in my house, there's more than I care to admit, but there is a lot of dirt. Dirt is heavy. Dirt, uh, if you've ever shoveled a bunch of dirt into a wheelbarrow, you know how heavy it gets very quickly. Dirt is expensive to move, too. Whenever a construction project takes place and they bring in all that heavy machinery, and that's not cheap. It takes a lot of energy and, and uh, know-how to just make the dirt level for the construction project. It's expensive. And then Isaiah says, we don't know how much dirt there is. Only God knows how much dirt there exists in the planet. 
Then he draws our attention to the mountains and the hills. And he says, Who, who's weighed the mountains? How much does Stone Mountain weigh? How much do the Appalachian Mountains or the Colorado Rockies or the Canadian Rockies or let's go out to Asia, to the Himalayas, go out to Mount Everest. I don't know how heavy it is. Maybe a scientist somewhere has calculated how heavy they are, but really, I don't know that they know. God knows. The proof of God's greatness is found in God's creation. We need only go in our backyard. One does not have to go to the highest of heavens or down to Sheol to see the greatness of God. God has made it plain and evident for us in Romans chapter one, Paul tells us. Every man is without excuse. We all know about the greatness of God. Every everybody does, even those who profess to be non-believers in their conscience. They know that there is a God and they are supposed to be believing in him. The evidence is everywhere. You can't escape the evidence. The greatness of God is demonstrated not only in the things that God has made, but then the sovereign control of that universe and the aseity, the fact that God, even though he made everything, he doesn't need any of it. That's the another amazing thing. God makes all this stuff and he doesn't need it for himself. Look at verse 13. Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or as his counselor has informed him? And the answer here is this is a rhetorical question. The answer is no one. No one teaches God. God does not need to learn, boys and girls. He does not need to go to school. He doesn't have to study. He doesn't have to do homework. He doesn't have to take exams. He is already full of all knowledge. He is omniscient, knowing everything about everything. He is current on everything that is. And not only that, but the Westminster Standards tell us that he's current on everything that could be as well, which is amazing when you think about that. God knows everything actual and everything potential. There is no missing piece of information in the mind of God. He knows everything about the past. He knows everything currently going on among all seven billion of us. He knows all our thoughts from afar. He knows the future entirely. He knows all possible contingencies about everything that could be. God knows you in the present as a justified sinner. Eustius et peccator. To give you a little scroll there. (laughs) Sinner, but justified. Right? But what? He knows you glorified too, doesn't he? In the mind of God, he is not any less informed about your glorified state and future than he is of all your present thoughts and actions. Your glorified actions, your glorified words for an infinite eternity. He is Perfectly knowledgeable of all of it. Billions and billions of years that you have yet to live in glory. And he knows it all. God knows perfectly. You, you don't even know you. You cannot go to Colorado and find you, despite everybody's attempt to go. Why it's Colorado? I don't know. But everybody who wants to find themselves seems to want to go to Colorado. And all you do, you go to Colorado you will not discover 
all that you need to know about you. You, you. God knows you better than you know you. If you want to know you, you need to know God. This is how John Calvin opens the Institutes, doesn't he? There's two things you need to know. You need to know God and you need to know yourself, he says. And we discover more of ourselves by knowing God. He he knows everything. Look at verse 15 to 17. The creator, God, Isaiah then tells us, is infinitely above that which he's made. He's made a vast creation. I mean, he's made so much, we don't even know what he's made. We, nobody knows where the end of the universe is. We, we, we have this hypothesis that it's expanding. We don't know. And God knows. And the amazing thing is God is not even contained in the creation. Now, we live, move, and have our being in God. But God uh, is far beyond, above that which he has created. Notice here in verse 15, he, he draws our attention to the nations. And he says, the nations are like a little drop of water, boys and girls, coming out of a leaky bucket, a bucket that's got a little rust hole, right, in, in the edge of it. And so you fill it up with water and you carry it through your backyard and it drips a little drop of water every so often as you carry that bucket of water. And notice here, Isaiah says, behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. You think about all the big nations. I said seven billion of us or so. China. One out of every five people is from China. China's huge. India, uh, Russia, Brazil, United States. Then you think about tiny little nations. Monaco, San Marino, Liechtenstein. Teeny, teeny tiny nations. Great nations and small nations. When you put them all together, they're still only a drop. One single drop of water. You know, boys and girls, how many times have you... Heard, oh, honey, be careful. You dropped one drop of water from your glass. Well, my guess is you've never heard that, right? Because what's a drop of water? Your mom doesn't care if a drop of water falls on the table. A drop of water is nothing to your mom. Your mom never says, oh, honey, be careful. You're, you're being wasteful. You, that drop of water. Your parents don't get upset if there's a drop of water left in your dinner glass, do they? Now, if it's milk, wait a minute now. <laughs> Milk's expensive. <laughs> but a drop of water, it's nothing. And that is what the nations are to God. Insignificant, tiny, small. Just as we read tonight, 185,000 soldiers, kill them. Gone. Hezekiah fearing for his life, fearing for his nation, fearing for Jerusalem, for the temple. One night, angel of the Lord, one angel of the Lord, go down, take care of him. You know, we, we, we become enamored with Caesar's power uh, over yet even one of these nations. Now, we write huge biographies about the men who govern these nations. And they are as nothing to God. The nations 
are compared then, Isaiah says in 15, line B, second line of verse 15, to a speck of dust on the scales. He says the nations are even smaller than a drop of water now. I mean, who who goes into their bathroom and dusts the scale with pledge to get make sure all the dust is off before you step on that scale there? Now, maybe some of you do, but it's not going to make any difference if you take all the dust off your scale. Your actual weight will not be registered any differently in your eyesight. Uh, your instrument that you use will not be able to detect it. It is too insignificant. And Isaiah is saying, such are the nations with God. Not that the nations are necessarily so small. It's that God is so infinitely great. He is infinitely above all the nations. He is infinitely above every aspect of his creation. Verse 15c, Isaiah says, even the islands are like dust to the Lord. You know, you remember, uh, boys and girls, the story of Babel, Babel, if you are British. And it was constructed, you know, they, the plan was, all right, let's all get together. We'll construct this huge tower in it. We will be able to ascend to heaven. We will be able to rival God, essentially. And I love what Moses says in that chapter. What does he say? And the Lord had to come down. To see what they were doing. <laughs> and you, you have this picture of God coming down and saying, Oh, that's really cute. What is that? What are you guys doing? You are clever. And then, of course, God judges them and splits the languages and, and the rest is history. You have a foreign language department created like that. The world went into apostasy Uh, in the days of Noah, we're told. And God was able to flood the world and and destroy it. Sodom and Gomorrah were committing unspeakable acts with one another, and they were attempting to do the same, even with strangers. And God rained fire and brimstone upon them. Likely gave us, according to Jonathan Edwards, he believes that's the reason we have the Dead Sea today, interestingly. Uh, I'd never thought of that until I read Edwards many years ago. Um, when, when Egypt refused to obey God, God destroyed their nation. In the book of Daniel, chapter 2, Daniel teaches that the great kingdom, symbolized by that huge statue with the head of gold and the breast and the arms of silver and the belly and the thighs of bronze and the feet of iron and clay, this statue represented what? The great empires. Represented the Babylonian Empire and the Medes and the Persians and, you know, Rome. And what happens? A rock, a rock, not cut with human hands, symbolizing Christ, strikes at the feet. Commentators believe the reason it strikes at the feet is it shows when the incarnation of Christ, the advent of Christ was to come during the time of the Roman Empire. He was to come in the period represented by the the iron and the clay. And the rock grows, we are told, into the largest mountain and fills the whole earth. That rock being the kingdom of Christ. The book of Acts tells us that the apostles were able to turn the world upside down with their teaching. This was a great work of God. Whereby 
The Lord showed the nations that even the gates of hell would not stand before his spirit and power. He would raise Jesus from the dead, according to the scriptures, and seat him at his right hand and send the spirit to conquer those nations that are but dust in his sight. You know, we I think we need to be careful as believers not to give undue allegiance to this world, to the nations, to the to the Caesars. Now, yes, we are Romans 13 called to obey. Peter tells us obey the civil magistrate and the things that are lawful. But I think we need to be careful that we not revel in the glory of Caesar. Beyond the glory of God. We are easily impressed with our technological capabilities. We are impressed with the greatness of our nation because of our advancements. We call ourselves a superpower. And yet we need to remember we are less than a drop of water to God. You know, that's why we should never trust in chariots and in horses and in tanks and in missiles and in our satellites. And all our technology that will not save us. The Bible is clear. Righteousness exalts the nation. Not our technologies. We also see the uniqueness of God in, in addition to his great power and authority. We see that God is unique. Isaiah says in verse 18, who is like God? To whom then will you liken God? Remember, again, let's not lose sight of what Isaiah's, why Isaiah is going to all this detail here. Remember, you see it there in verse one. Comfort, oh, comfort my people. He's drawing us to look and meditate on God for the sake of comfort and the greatness of God and now the uniqueness of God. God is unique. There is none like him. No one compares to him. Exodus chapter 8 verse 10 says, May it be according to your word that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. That's what Moses said to Pharaoh. First Samuel chapter 2 verse 2. There is no one holy like the Lord, we are told. Indeed, there is no one besides thee, nor is there any rock like our God, we are told. God cannot be compared to any image or likeness. And, you know, that is why one of the reasons we have the second commandment, which forbids any visual representation of God. You know, it's not boys and girls. I know sometimes there's the desire on your part. I just want to see what Jesus looked like. And I, and I know there's that desire and, and that, that curiosity. And, and, but one of the reasons we try to be very careful about visual representations of any person of the Godhead is because it can never truly, really represent them accurately. God cannot be portrayed with pen and brush and stone and gold and silver. It will always be a misrepresentation of him. I would argue that even for the films, which... I think maybe are rightly motivated to try and and use these films for the advancement of the gospel. But faith comes by hearing and that of the word and any actor who portrays Jesus will always misrepresent Jesus. It's inevitable. He cannot. The human nature of Christ 
is perfected, sanctified by the divine nature. And therefore, we have to always let the Bible show us who Christ is. We perceive Christ not with the visual eye, but with the eyes of faith. There is no one like God. The Lord is contrasted against the idols. You'll see in verse 19 and following, as for the idol, a craftsman casts it, a goldsmith plates it. And if you can't afford a a golden idol, then there's the silver. And hey, if you can't afford that, the salesman says, I got this wooden one here for you as well. And he works works his way on down in price. Whatever your price point is, I got an idol, says the idol salesman. But they are all gross misrepresentations of God. There are some religions that do still have idols, though the advancement of Christianity around the world has done much to rid the world of at least the visual idols that Isaiah is speaking of here. Psalm 115 tells us the idols, have, they have eyes, but they can't see boys and girls, right? They, they, the artist, he gives them ears, but they can't hear. He gives them a mouth, but they can't speak. They can't answer prayer. They can't hear prayer. They can't see the needs in your life. The idol brings no comfort. Only the unique and living and true God can comfort his people. And therefore, we need to be careful that we not liken anything in the creation to God. Be careful that we do not magnify anything in the creation to the level of deity. This, this is idolatry. When any, whenever we want something as much as we want God, we are in danger of having created an idol. Whenever we have regard or reverence or fear or love for anything in the creation to the extent that we would God himself. We have violated the first commandment. We have given ourselves to idolatry. You know, the Bible has given us some visible symbols to represent God and his work. And that's what's represented here before us. He has given us baptism and the Lord's Supper to portray the work of God and the work of Christ. Look at verse 21. Isaiah goes on. He says, do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? Isaiah seems to admonish us here. These truths about idolatry should be well known among the people of God. They should be self-evident. They have been told from the beginning. And so they are asked whether they are short of any understanding. We need to remind ourselves that we too are the children of Adam and Eve fallen. And there is a dullness in ourselves regarding the basic truths of God. Look at verse 22. The Lord sits above the heavens. We are told it is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. What does it mean for God to sit above the heavens, boys and girls? The sitting here, I think, is a picture of reigning. It's like a king. He is governing. He is ruling supremely. He is not having to stand out of some anxiety over his creation. He's in complete control. And compared to his vast greatness, the creatures, even men, are like little grasshoppers. 
His greatness is demonstrated by looking. Then we are told into the sky. Notice here, Isaiah says, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and he spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. Now, this is where I was saying here. I was going to get to this in a, in a minute here that um, I kind of skipped over it earlier. I had to look at the ocean. I had to look at the dirt and the mountains. But let's come back you know, the, to the sky. He, he, he has us look at the heavens again. And, and the heavens are compared to a mere tent or a curtain that's spread by God. Uh, men naturally awe earthly power, kings and pri- presidents and prime ministers, as I said earlier about the glory of Caesar. But God sits above the heavens and he's able to bring proud kings like Nebuchadnezzar down to eat grass. Pilate has no authority to crucify Jesus except it be given to him from above. Cyrus of Persia has his spirit stirred within him so that he desires that God's people go back and build the temple again. Proverbs tells us that the heart of the king is in the hands of the Lord. Pharaoh, we are told, is raised up so that God might display his power through him in his destruction. Psalm 2 says, hearken, O judges of the earth and kings. Fear the Lord, kiss the son, his wrath to turn. In Revelation 1.5, Jesus Christ is called the ruler of the kings of the earth. Isaiah compares the princes of the earth to planted crops that wither under the elements. And when you think about history, Nero, Diocletian, various popes, the Stuart monarchy, Lenin, Stalin, Hitler, communist Chinese, Vietnamese, communists in North Korea, Castro in Cuba, they've all persecuted the true church of Jesus Christ. And yet almost all of these men have thus withered away and eventually they all will unless they repent. Every one of them has become like chaff before King Jesus. And his truth remains forever. His church shall stand for eternity. And so Isaiah goes on in verse 25 and says, who compares to God? Which of these men, which of these political parties, which of these vain philosophies can stand before the might and the strength of his eternal power? And then you get to verse 26. And this is where it's neat. He says, lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. You know, one of my favorite lines in Genesis chapter one is that little phrase. And he made the stars. (laughs) Moses makes it sound so easy. (laughs) You know, he goes into about all all that he made, the waters above, the waters beneath, you know, the uh, land and, uh, you know, the sun to govern the day, moon to govern the night. Uh, and he made the stars. <laughs> now, let's just set that sentence by a, a part here just for a second. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. The one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name. Think about that. We're talking about all the stars in the universe. Now, let me just set stars in a context here for you just for a second. Since the Bible itself says, lift up your eyes. I'm going to lift them up figuratively in your mind here. All those stars that you see at night when you go outside on a clear night. That is a local collection of stars only. That is what we call our galaxy. In addition to our galaxy, where you see all those stars, there are 
Scientists tell us trillions of other galaxies. Trillions. Not of stars. Trillions of galaxies full of stars. The principal part of our galaxy, according to Jim Kaler, Professor Emeritus of Astronomy at the University of Illinois, is that our galaxy is the shape of a flat disk about 100,000 light years across that contains some 200 billion stars. That's just our galaxy. Remember, I just said there are trillions of other galaxies out there. We're just talking about ours, and it's 100,000 light years wide, and it contains 200 billion stars. And our sun, the one, that, the, the one star that we're most familiar with, our sun is actually toward the edge of that galaxy. It's about 25,000 light years from the center. And the, the total solar system mass, according to Dr. Kaler, he says 109 Earths would be required to fit across the sun's disk. Sun, the sun is that big. The interior could hold over 1.3 million Earths. The sun's outer visible layer, called the photosphere, has a temperature of 11,000 degrees Fahrenheit. That's 6,000 degrees Celsius for you Canadians. This layer has a mottled appearance due to the turbulent eruptions of energy at the surface. Solar energy is created deep within the core of the sun, it is here that the temperature reaches 27 million degrees Fahrenheit. The pressure at the core is 340 billion times the air pressure down at the beach at sea level. So intense that nuclear reactions take place. And, and I won't go into all the details that Dr. Kaler does. But the energy that is expelled from the core to the surface of the sun is a process known as convection. Where it is released as light and heat, the energy generated in the sun's core takes eight million years, they say, to reach the surface. Every second, 700 million tons of hydrogen are converted into helium ashes. Five million tons of pure energy. These are numbers that just beyond my own capability here. 500, uh, five million tons of pure energy is released. Therefore, as time goes on, the sun is becoming lighter, they think. And verse 26, line C, the third line, or just look at line B. See who has created these stars. I just named only one of them for you. The one who leads forth their host by number, he calls them all by number. Name. All the billions of stars in the billions of trillions of galaxies. God knows all of them individually. And by his might and by his strength and by his power, he keeps them for as long as he wants. In the last section here, Isaiah's point is this. 
This God is your covenant-keeping God. This is the God who does not grow tired nor grow weary, but he gives generously to the, strength, to the strengthening of his weary people. He admonishes, Isaiah admonishes his people who complain that God does not see or take notice. And yet, he says, though young men grow weary and get tired and they stumble with fatigue, those who wait upon the Lord will find their strength renewed. The living God, the eternal creator, sees you. Even though you and I are insignificant in this universe, he knows you by name, too. God's energy level does not change. He is immutable in his power. And when he gives strength to you, his strength is in no way diminished in himself. And therefore, we are called by Scripture to seek our strength from the Lord. One more thing I'll say. Recognize. That this God in the eternal son, we are told, created all things. John 1, 3, all things came into being by him, that is by Christ. And apart from him, nothing came into being. Who made the stars? Jesus Christ with the father and the spirit. Who made the sun with all that energy? Christ. Who made the earth? The sea, the millions of aquatic animals, the mammals, the insects, Christ. Who made our galaxy with its 200 billion stars? Christ. Who made the trillions of galaxies with those billions of stars? Christ. Who upholds all this creation by his power? Christ. And this same Jesus Christ became a baby. Amen.